when does this become relevant? I mean, when should I even be thinking about it? The answer is, is the minute that the thought has crossed your mind, wow, it really sucked to lose this money. At that moment, whether that's a hundred thousand or a million. A hundred grand? If I've got a quarter in my pocket, I'm thinking it would suck to lose that money. Today on Your Money, Your Wealth, asset protection attorney Doug Lodmel tells Joe and Big Al the secrets to keeping your money safe in the event of a lawsuit. Social security benefits are going up, 401k contributions are going up, but Joe is practically foaming at the mouth on the 401k thing because it may also be a nightmare. Al's got six myths about freezing your credit in the wake of the Equifax double debacle, and the fellas answer your emails on when to take RMDs, family real estate entanglements, and how not to self-deal in your Roth IRA, because that's illegal. And Al snoops into what Joe does during his lunch break, only to find out that they're seeing the same shrink. Now, here are two guys who definitely need therapy, Joe Anderson, CFP, and Big Al Clopine, CPA. Right off the bat, Al, increases in our 401k savings next year. Well, you are right about that, Joe. I think it was just announced this last week that uh, your 401k, you'll be able to put a little bit more money into it. So, a couple uh, bucks, 500 bucks, 500 bucks. Yeah, it's uh, so right now it's eighteen thousand dollars per person, and uh, you'll be able to put in eighteen thousand five hundred per person next year, two thousand eighteen. Remember, it's still eighteen thousand this year, and don't forget to max out your contribution. Uh, if you can't afford it. Uh, and I will also say if you're over 50, 50 and older, you can do an extra $6,000 catch-up. That's for this year and next year. No change in the catch-up. Really? No change in the catch-up. So 24.5 is the max. 24.5 for catch-up by 500. Well, because it's a it's a lower amount. I guess they could have done it 6,125 or something like that. I guess they decided just to leave it the same for simplicity. They, they seem to like to increase these things $500 when they do. Yes. Yeah. So they kind of wait till it seems to warrant it. But that may not matter, Joe, because... Um, so that's all plans. 401k, 403b, 457, TSP. Um, what about SEP, simple contributions? They go up 500 bucks? Uh, IRAs uh, were not discussed in the article that I saw. Uh, but uh, the, the the income levels... Well, actually, no, IRAs were discussed. They didn't change. Six thousand. It's $5,500 for... For normal and $6,500 if you're 50 and older. But the um, income limitations for married couples for contributing to a Roth IRA next year will will start to phase out at $189,000 right. and go to $199,000. So right now it's $186,000 to $196,000. Right. And uh, if you're single, the phase out will be from $120,000 to $135,000. That's easier to remember. That is. We'll, we'll actually be able to remember yeah, it for right. at least one year. <laughs> 120 to 135. That's that's uh, that's next year. But I was going to say, Joe, this may not matter because what they're talking about in Washington right now, according to the Wall Street Journal on Friday, there's talk of capping 401k contributions at $2,400 per year. And it's capping the deductibility of it. Correct. Meaning, so you could still put in your 18,000, but only 2,400 bucks is going to be a, a pre-tax a contribution. tax deduction, and so presumably the rest is uh, is a Roth. I suppose it could be just basis, which would be worse. Yeah. Yeah, hopefully the rest would at least be a Roth so that when you withdraw those funds, they're tax-free. But here's the, the catch with that. If I have after-tax contributions in my retirement plan now, I can take those out and move those directly into a Roth without any tax consequences. That's true. So at least So even if it does have basis, you just have to 
move it out every year to put it into a Roth IRA if your plan probably allows in-service yeah. withdrawals. Yeah, and a lot of them you have to be 59 and a half, so you might be doing this for 30 years before Yeah, but you can n- do that. not necessarily with the after-tax contributions is funny. With in-service distributions, in-service withdrawals. All right, so let's kind of discuss that. Yeah. What that is is that you can take money out of your retirement account as you're still in service. You're still an active participant in the plan. So you're putting in your money, but maybe you want it outside of your current employer 401k plan, for instance. Um, what the law allows you to do is do an in-service distribution. So you're still in service. You can take that money, roll it into an IRA. There is no tax consequence on that. And then you can pick and choose the investments of your choice. Right. And where, Al, you're coming from is that, all right, well, in a lot of cases that you have to be over 59 and a half to do an in-service withdrawal. Right. Some plans will allow you to take, let's say, the company match prior to 59 and a half and move that. Other plans, there's some weird formula that they say, okay, well, certain dollar figures are allowed to do an in-service withdrawal or distribution if you're under 59 and a half. Some plans, if you're over 59 and a half, still don't allow the in-service withdrawal. So it's all on the plan document. And I think that's where people get confused too, is that the IRS has certain statutes in the law of what they put into the code. But the plan document is something completely different. And the plan document always trumps the the law. Well, not always if it's if it's contrary to the law. Well, the yes, law but will... I mean if if like if it says, all right, well, yeah, you can do in-service distributions, in-service withdrawals. Yes. And then I go to my plan and say, All right, well, I want to do an in-service distribution. And they're like, No, the plan doesn't allow it. Yeah. So, so then you you're stuck. You got to keep it in the plan. That's what that's my point. Yes, that, I'm not that's stating fair. that you can't draft a 401k <laughs> document and say take it out whenever. No tax, pre-tax I'm contributions. Ju- I'm just commenting on your word of the, uh, use of the word always. <laughs> oh God, <laughs> what are you writing a textbook? <laughs> I'm trying to keep you on the straight and narrow because I'm the accountant here. <laughs> oh, it, okay. You get what I'm saying. I do. I did, but I want to make sure our listeners did. So you have to look at, hey, whatever the plan document is, plus what the IRS allows. Yes. Okay. And you have to follow governing law. Right. Yeah. Because the plan, you know, IRS says you can do in-service withdrawals, but maybe the plan doesn't allow it. Yeah. But in most cases, in my experience, after tax, because we don't see a ton of after-tax contributions. Yeah, not these days. Maybe some of the older plans. Right. Yeah. And in most cases with the older plans, those individuals are over 59 and a half, so it's really a non-issue. Right. But there's there's like 401A plans, for instance. Yeah. All right? And so with, you know, there's 401As, there's 401Ks, there's 403Bs. So the, who I don't know why they had to come up with so many different terminology here. But sometimes you have a 401a plan that's an after-tax contribution. The employer is going to match you X and you and it, once you get your job and you do your benefits, you have to elect what you want to defer. And the maximum might be 6%. But you can't change it once you elect whatever that you want to defer. But those are some in, in some cases those are after tax contributions, and with those plans, um, potentially you could move those after tax dollars directly into a Roth IRA each and every year, no matter what your age is. That is true. So it's and that, that was a law that was about three years ago, three or four years ago, where that came into being. Yeah, that was under the Jobs Act. Yeah, whatever year that was. Yeah, that was twenty thirteen. Twenty thirteen, I believe. Yeah, um, could be. And then that also came about with in 
plan conversions. Right. Where you could take, let's say if you had a Roth provision in your 401k plan, you could move pre-tax dollars into the Roth uh, portion of your own 401k plan through your own employer. So you could do an interplan conversion. But the downside of doing an interplan conversion is that you could never recharacterize it. Right. Right. So if you did the conversion, then you're stuck with it. You yeah. have to pay the tax. Yeah. If you did too much, you got a big bonus and you put yourself in a higher bracket. You couldn't undo it like a regular IRA to Roth conversion. You can always undo it. It's called recharacterization. You can undo it all, all the way to the tax filing date in the following year, Right. which is a pretty nice thing. In other words, when you file your tax return, you, you look at the Roth conversion, it's like, whoops, that was a little too much. Based upon my circumstance, I, I want to claw back some. That's a recharacterization. So this could be a whole nightmare. Uh, Twenty four hundred bucks. <laughs> I'm putting in eighteen thousand. Is it basis? Is it not basis? Is it Roth? Yeah. And well, then if it is basis, is the plan going to allow me to do the inner plan or either an inner plan conversion or move it directly out of the plan as an in-service distribution into my own Roth IRA? Yeah. Or am I going to have to wait? Because let's say if I it, let, let's say I put um, twelve thousand four hundred dollars into my plan, twenty four hundred dollars would be pre tax. The other ten thousand is after tax. Mm -hmm. And if I cannot do an inner plan conversion, move that money into the Roth, right? right? I'm just assuming it has basis, sure. and then all the growth is going to grow tax deferred. Yeah, but that growth is going to be taxed at ordinary income right. rates, right? And that's the problem, right? right. And so then, up five, ten, fifteen, twenty years is what you're alluding to is that now you have these basis in your 401k plan, but that basis also had growth on it, yeah, maybe, because you invested in growth mutual funds. Yeah, maybe you get. Ten thousand a basis, and it doubled twice in the in your career, right? So it went from twenty to forty. Well, that extra thirty thousand of growth would be fully taxable. It's only that ten thousand a basis, unless you could get it into a Roth four hundred one k. Then that whole forty would be tax free. So here's where you got to look at some significant planning because this is, and we're we're running into this problem now. Is that all right? Let's say you have after tax contributions, you have pre tax contributions, and you have Roth contributions all in your 401k plan. Right. And then now it's time to start taking distributions, right? So then you have this whole pro rata formula. Yeah. Right? It's which, like, which, okay, well, which one's Roth? Which one's after tax? Which one is pre tax? And then you've got to take a look at the pro rata formula to say, all right, well, what percentage of the total account balance is after tax versus Roth versus pre tax? And then that's what my distribution's going to be. And then just doing the tax filing on that is going to be a, an utter nightmare as well. Yeah. And I thought we were trying to get simpler. Right. And then so, I mean, how much more money is that going to cost the custodians <laughs> to try to track all this? And are they, you know, the more more complexity that you put because these small businesses, a lot of them, I mean, you know the numbers probably better than I do, but they don't want to even go with these 401k plans because it's like, okay, well, it, it costs me money. I got a third party administrator. Right. I have to do 5,500 tax filings. Well, you know, I got to act as a fiduciary, but you know, I'm in the steel industry. How the hell do I know what a fiduciary <laughs> is when it comes to investments? I'm right. giving my employees an option to save for retirement. Sure. And then now we're, we're throwing all these complexities on top of the plan and figuring out the tax implications on the way out. It's like, what are we doing, guys? Right. 
we got to simplify this whole retirement thing. And then for them to go after retirement plans still, it just drives me nuts because we need more incentives to save. Yeah, we should have a $30,000 contribution. It should limit. be th- whatever, Not, unlimited. Unlimited, whatever you want. <laughs> you Because most people aren't saving. You know, you go to an average person, the, the what they could put $24,000 in if they're over 50. How much are they saving? Three grand. <laughs> it's unlimited, sir. You can save a million into this plan. They'll they, move it up to like thirty-one hundred bucks. Yeah, they scrape up for another hundred dollars. Yes, or... <laughs> you're not. I mean, right? So, yeah. And I get it. All right. Well, then the highly compensated employees, you know, the CEOs of the world, and all this that well, are making that, millions of dollars. I think that's why you have to cap it at some point. Yeah. I mean, but, it couldn't be unlit. Be people would put three million dollars into their four hundred one k. Well, I, well, the, the, hopefully the. <laughs> if they're making three million bucks, I'm, that's what I'm saying. Yes, the highly compensated. So what? what what's, that doesn't include you and me. It does not. <laughs> it does not. But what? So I mean, what is the right number? I mean, twenty four thousand. That's a decent number. But if I look at a defined contribution plan, right, the total amount that I can put in a DC plan is fifty two thousand, give or take a couple of bucks. Right. Right. So then I have, all right, so let's say if I'm self-employed, I could put in 50-some-odd thousand dollars. I, or maybe I'm a school teacher that I have a 403B and a 457. I'm over 50. I could put 24000 in each of those. And then I'm Joe Schmo off the street that works for a small business, and the CEO or the owner of the company says, you know what, I don't want to... You know, I'm not going to deal with this BS. Yeah, it's too complicated. It's too, too complicated. Too I don't want to deal with it. It's going to cost me money. You don't get a 401k plan. You can do your own IRA. Do your own IRA. 5,500. Thank you so much. I mean, this thing is just well, that, jacked. That's the worst part. It should be consistent. You, it, you shouldn't be penalized if you work for a small business that doesn't have a 401k. The IRA limit should be 18,000 or 18,500 and they, in 24. And, right. And they should be merged together. So, so everyone's on the same playing field. Right. I mean, that's uh, why obvious. is it that difficult? It's not, but for some reason we can't get that. So the 401k is 18,500 or for next year, 18,000 this year. IRA fifty five hundred bucks. Right. We we we've seen the stats. Right. right? Alan, you got a four hundred one k plan. I do not have a four hundred one k plan. We make the same amount of money. Thirty years later, who's going to have more money saved for retirement? Yeah, the one with the four hundred one k. The one with the four hundred one k plan. We, we see that question. over and over again because it's easy, right? It's, you you have uh, withdrawals from your paycheck. You you don't even realize it. It just happens automatically every month. Yeah. So I don't know. Stay tuned. All this stuff with just just whatever. <laughs> While Joe goes and cools off from that rant, let's talk about what you can do if some of that was as confusing for you as it was for me. Call 888-994-6257 and make an appointment to ask any questions you may have to make sure you're on the right track for retirement and to schedule a personalized tax reduction analysis. That number again is 888-994-6257. How are these new 401k rules and the massive proposed tax reform going to affect you? Start end-of-year tax planning now to help you not just this year, but for the rest of your life. Don't wait until the last minute. Find out how your current tax strategy may be changing before the end of 2017, which is just weeks away, and what you can do to keep up. Get a forward-looking personalized tax reduction analysis at no cost or obligation to you. Call Pure Financial at 888-994-6257. 888-994-6257. Now the question is, are we going to get that proposed massive tax reform? Big Al's been a CPA for over 30 years. I'm a certified financial planner. I've been doing financial planning for... What would you say? I don't even know. 
When did you start? I'll compute it for you. Well, I, that's that's a problem. I think it was 1998. 98? So oh, close 20, to 20 years almost is what 20. I say, but okay. it, it might have been 1999. That's still close to 20. Yeah. I feel yeah, old now. I think. Well, sure. I'll tell you what happens when you, you feel old is when it's over 30, and then you don't say 36 yeah, years. 36 you, years. You, you say like 30 or, plus. Or 39 or 40. <laughs> you just say over 30. Yeah, right. Good enough. You're 50 years in. Yeah, I've been a CPA for over 30 years. <laughs> That's all you ever yes. say. 30, and then I'm, 30 I'm plus shooting years. Up, you know, I'm, I'm 15. You know, I'm close to 20. I know. You're trying to increase I'm it. I'm trying to increase it. You're trying yeah. to decrease it. A couple it. years, you'll be, hmm, it's only been 25. Yeah. <laughs> I was listening to this one guy. Yeah, I've been helping people for a, over a decade. That sounds a lot. Yeah. But the, the decades, <laughs> what, 10 years. You could, you could say almost two decades. Two decades I've yeah. been helping people in their financial life. You, you could say I've been helping people over two millennials. <laughs> oh, well, anyway, whatever. We've been trying to help people on this radio show. Yeah, I'm not sure if it's help. We, we, yeah. Well, it's. I don't think our listeners expect much. <laughs> <laughs> but I do have some news that you could use, and and that is the uh, uh, the Republicans, uh, uh, the the Senate, I should say, uh, approved a budget plan that smooths the path towards a tax cut. Which, which kind of, in some ways, sounds kind of confusing. Why does a why does a budget being passed have anything to do with a tax cut? And the reason it does is because in the budget they have this reconciliation language that simply states that uh, that they they sort of pave the way to uh, for uh, to increase the deficit over the next ten say years. ten years for one for one point five trillion, which is kind of what they're thinking the tax cut is going to cost. And so because of that, then they have this ability to, to, to pass the tax law under the reconciliation part of the, of the budget, which simply means you don't need a 60-person majority, you only need 51 in the Senate, which means that they can pass it without any Democratic support, right. which is, I think, what they're going to try to do. The problem with that, though, is then it, it's not a permanent it change. It sunset. It sunsets in 10 years, which is a long time. Well, that's the same thing with uh, what the, extra the yeah, economic the, growth we can see. Yeah, the bush tax cuts yeah. uh, they were temporary. Uh, estate taxes were going to increase and then go away in 2010, which they did, by the way. And then 2011 they came back because of the sunset. So that's what they're trying to do right now. Egg Trump. Was that Economic Growth Reconciliation Tax Act? I don't know. You love those acronyms. I don't pay any attention to them. <laughs> you got to know the law, Al, so you can I look know it the up. Law. I don't have to know what EGTRA stands for. <laughs> <laughs> I don't care what it stands for. I know it was it was significant tax law passed in 2000 yes. uh, that affected 2001 and beyond. Right. That's yeah, all. I, I don't the, care what it's the, called. The Bush tax Egg carton or EGTRA, whatever. <laughs> it doesn't matter to me. Also, on but the, here's what's funny about that tax. So the Bush tax cuts. Yeah. So they were due to expire in 2010. Yeah. Okay. So what? Are, we're in 2017. Yeah. It's pretty much the same. Well, it except is. for the 39.6 percent tax bracket. Right. All right. If you got the 3.8 percent net investment income tax. Yeah. But the but the reason why it's the same is because under, of the recession. Well, the recession and Obama administration went ahead and and passed a different law, but basically retained the same tax brackets, except for the highest bracket. I think went from, what, 30, 35. 35 to 39.6. Right. Yeah, and they're trying to go back to 39, uh, 35, 35 from 39.6, although Paul Ryan, he said uh, tax overhaul will include a bracket aimed at the wealthy. 
meaning that they're thinking about adding a fourth bracket for the wealthy. Uh, it didn't say at what income level. It didn't say what the bracket would be, but they're they're talking about that right now. So and, then and, all and, of a sudden it's going to go to five brackets, well, and then it will go to six brackets, <laughs> and then guess what? We're right back, we're back where we're to at. seven. <laughs> well, they, they count it as four right now because of the... The twenty thousand dollars standard, twenty four thousand dollars standard they call it a zero. right? Which is the same exact thing we have now, right? So I don't. That's kind of a lot. Of, I, I, will, I will tell you this, and I'm not an expert at all news, but I am pretty familiar with tax news. And don't believe the headlines; they're very misleading. <laughs> well, that's how we get our stuff. I know, but just I'm just telling you, it's it's. Uh, <laughs> Well, it's, this is going to be a good article. Oh it's my just gosh. nonsense. It's you, you read the headline, and I actually know better, and I'm thinking, how are they going to justify that? And of course, they don't. But then it's it's but it sounded good, made me read it. So don't just read headlines and assume they got you. you got the well, news. They got you. I know. I know. That's the, the that's the aim. I get it. Oh boy. So yeah, we got just a couple more months to see if anything gets passed here. Update. The Senate passed their budget, and now the House has endorsed it without changes. And the House Ways and Means Committee chairman has announced that the text of the tax bill will be released on November 1st. Is all this talk of tax reform making you feel a bit uncertain? Because it is me. Do you know what's in your retirement future? Because I've got no idea. But Joe and Big Al have some little-known secrets for us about creating income to last a lifetime, making the most of our investment strategy in retirement, controlling our taxes, and much more. Visit the white paper section of the Learning Center at yourmoneyyourwealth.com to download our free retirement readiness guide. You'll learn seven plays to help you get retirement ready despite the uncertainties we may face. Download the free retirement readiness guide from the white paper section of the Learning Center at yourmoneyyourwealth.com. Alan, it's that time of the show. It is, and I can't wait, as usual. We got a pretty smart individual on the line. We do. I could tell from talking to him at the break. Yes. Smarter than us. We're going to talk about so we had to ask him, Swift. We had, we, <laughs> He knows a little about everything. <laughs> yeah. He talk about the devaluation of the dollar and uh, also a little bit about asset protection. Yeah. I think that's important for a lot of people. You know, if you've accumulated a couple of bucks, you just need to know, hey, can I protect them? We have a, an attorney. Attorney. Yeah. We haven't had an attorney on in quite some time. We haven't. You're right about that. Uh, we have Douglas Lodmill. Lodmill? Lodmill. Lodmill. I keep on getting Lodmill. that. Lodmill. Right. Douglas, is it Lodmill or Lodmill? Yep, Douglas Laudmill. Laudmill. Okay, we got it. See, I'm from Minnesota, and I got you a big, to, fat tongue. You want to say Laudmill? Laudmill. Laudmill. That's where that comes from. Yes, exactly. Well, welcome to the show, my friend. How have you been? Uh, thank you. I've been great, guys. Glad to be here. Well, let's kind of dive in. There's a lot of things that you've done in uh, your career. Just tell our listeners a little bit of a backdrop of kind of what you do, where you came from, and where you're going. Okay. Well, I'm an attorney, and uh, I, I do asset protection. So this is an area of the law that a lot of people, when I started this 20 years ago, they had no idea what it was. I'd say, I'm an asset protection attorney. And they'd say, what? Asset protection? I mean, are you a security guard? Uh, I mean, you know, wh- what is that? Today, asset protection is, is really common language. Every financial planner knows what it is. Every estate planning attorney knows what it is, or at least they know the word. I shouldn't say they know what it is. They know that it's a topic that clients are looking for. Um, and, and to boil it all down, what it is is it's legally protecting your assets from lawsuits. 
It's really that simple. Just, I mean, as an as a financial planner, you protect principal by choosing good investments. As an asset protection attorney, I protect principal by making sure that if you get sued related to your business or your activities, your partnerships, your employees, whatever it is, you are not creating an easy target for a plaintiff's attorney to look at your net worth and go, hey, easy pickings, let's let's go after that guy. Um, and keeping it out of a legal system that is clearly just run amok and, and um, no longer really based in any sense of fairness, but based on, you know, how can I use it to get a hold of somebody else's money? So, Doug, some, some people think you set up a living trust and you've got asset protection, which isn't true. If you pass away, the kids have asset protection, but it's much harder to get it when you're actually still alive yourself. Right. Yeah, that, that's exactly right. And you're correct. Most people call me and they go, yeah, well, I have a living trust, so I'm all set. Well, you're all set for dying is what you're all set for. And yes, if you draft it properly, your kids could end up with asset protection, although most of the time the kids don't because what the living trust does is it just distributes assets to them. So, you know, at the time of your death, your kids get dropped a bunch of money on them and they go and they commingle it with their spouse and they invest in their business and, and it's now totally unprotected from their creditors. But certainly for people who have accumulated wealth in their own life and they have their own net worth and now they're looking at, okay, how do I protect this from the, the normal course of business risks that I'm taking? That's a whole different topic. And a living trust is, is not the answer. Um, it requires a little more sophisticated set of tools. Well, let's talk about that. Let's talk a, a few different things here. We can uh, say the average Joe and then we can kind of build up the net worth scale. Um, you know, I, I would imagine the more assets that you have, the more complexity uh, things get with when it comes to asset protection, or maybe not. But if if I'm just building up my net worth at this point, I have a living trust. I have you know maybe a, just a few hundred thousand dollars. I have my home. When would be that that limit where I would want to look for you to say, hey, now it's it's, it's getting a little. It's scary where uh, I built up a substantial net worth because maybe I just have a, a couple million dollar umbrella policy. I mean, would that cover me? Is that decent enough? Or, you know, can you kind of help us through the progression of, of what level of protection someone might need and when? Yeah. And you know what? You went straight for the $64,000 question. I mean, that really is the question. Um, when does this become relevant? I mean, when should I even be thinking about it? The answer is, is the minute that you are, have, the thought has crossed your mind, wow, it really sucked to lose this money. It, it, at that moment, whether that's 100000 or a million, um, I can tell you that most people, when they think about sophisticated asset protection structures, uh, most attorneys that you ask, they're going to be thinking in the $5 million and $10 million client range. That's not my average client. My average client is between the $2 million and $5 million range. With even a couple of hundred thousand dollars, though, I would be thinking about it. And you may not need the most sophisticated version of the planning, but even with two or three hundred thousand dollars that you've saved up that's not in a retirement plan, there's things that can be done that make that much less accessible to a creditor. So as soon as you're worried about losing anything is the minute you should at least get informed about what you can do. So we're, we're talking about setting up an asset protection trust. And how, what are the mechanics? How do you go about that? Well, the asset protection trust is is kind of the the ultimate, right? That's like the the big asset protection vehicle. Um, it's a self settled spendthrift trust. What that means is that from an estate planning standpoint, um, or from a tax standpoint, it's a grant or trust, just like your revocable living trust is. The difference is is two main things. One, it has spendthrift provisions, and those are the provisions which limit a creditor's access 
to the money. In other words, the, the trust itself says that if a creditor is trying to reach these assets, the trustee is not going to give them to them. Um, and two, in order to really make that have teeth, it, it moves the jurisdiction of the trust into a more friendly jurisdiction, which could be another state or it could be out of the country. Um, so the asset protection trust becomes relevant anytime you really want to be super serious about absolutely not losing your money. Yeah, and let me ask you this. Uh, I want to kind of dumb it down first because there were some words there I, I really didn't understand. Big Al's a CPA for over 30 years. He's pretty smart. <laughs> So, <laughs> I was following. You know, I was tracking. Yeah, you track. You went straight for the trust. I was I like, know. well, I, I does wanna... it have to be a trust? I mean, can I do some asset protection without a trust? Let's start there. Yes, absolutely. And that, that's kind of where I was going to back into. Yeah. Look, if you only have $200,000, doing an asset protection pr- trust is really not appropriate. You, you don't need to spend the amount of money it would take or have the maintenance, but doing a limited liability company or a limited partnership so that you have some charging order protection around your investment account would be totally appropriate and very inexpensive and very simple to maintain. And when you do get enough money to where adding an asset protection trust becomes appropriate, you can just click it right into that limited liability company or right into that limited partnership so that you're actually using it as a building block for a future more sophisticated plan. Um, and, and I think everybody, I mean, even with $20,000 of investment, should not be doing it in their own name or in their revocable living trust. It, at the very least, you should set up a simple LLC and have your investment account inside of that LLC, at the very least. All right. So now i got more questions. So I have $100,000, 40 years old, and then I'm thinking, all right, well, let's get it out of my name. Let's put it in this LLC. So that's a limited liability company. But does that? Yep. It, it, but it's not a company. It's just my assets. How do I? Well, how do I justify that my assets are a company? Well, that's a great question. The answer is is that companies can be set up for all sorts of reasons, and a, a valid reason is managing your own personal money. That's a valid business reason to set up a company. So you might choose a company in a jurisdiction that has very good charging order protection, meaning that a a liability against one of the members of the limited liability company does not automatically attach to the assets of the company. And instead, the best thing that a creditor could hope for is a charge against that company. They call that a charging order. It's kind of like putting a lien against your property, but it doesn't force you to sell the underlying property. But if you're looking at having $100,000 and you get sued and somebody gets a judgment, let's say for $20,000 for some kind of dispute that you have, and they go and they think they're going to get twenty grand, and they go and they find out all they can get is a charge against your company and, and no right to force you to distribute it, how much more leverage do you have now to negotiate that thing away? Right. A lot. Yeah. And then so with that, all right, so now I, I set that up. So the cost of setting up an LLC is minimal. And then I have to what, file a tax return for that LLC. So that's a couple hundred bucks and something to the state, a couple hundred bucks, right? 700 bucks? Uh, 800 in California. 800 right? bucks in California. So for that, yep. you get a little bit more protection. I can have my brokerage account at um, you know Fidelity. Uh, I just changed the title to my LLC company from there. and then um, So that's kind of my building block of, of kind of building a little bit more of, a, um, I guess, a safe around my overall assets. Wait, would, uh, I, would we put our home into it as well? Um, great question. No, your home's not going to go into it because your home already has three major benefits that we do not want to disrupt. Tax-free capital gain on the sale of the home. Um, home mortgage interest deduction, and your homestead exemption. So those three things, if we put them in a company, now the IRS says, well, wait a second, this isn't a primary residence anymore. It's, a, it's an investment property. So we turn, we, we, we turn away those three gimme freebie benefits from, from the government. Um, and so, so we can't put the home in the LLC. 
we can put the home in the asset protection trust. So again, depending on how much equity is in your home, what state you're in, how much homestead exemption you already have would determine whether we need to take a specific action around the home. If you've got, like in California, you've got a very modest home and it's worth $1.2 million and you've worked really hard and now it's it, it's almost paid off. Let's say you only owe $400,000. Well, that's a ton of equity. We, we Now we're talking about probably looking at an asset protection trust of some form to protect that equity. If you need more information on just about any financial topic you can think of, check out Your Money, Your Wealth, and Pure Financial Advisors on YouTube for educational video clips and full episodes of the Your Money, Your Wealth TV show. Find out how to get a 0% capital gain tax rate, do a pre-retirement review, learn how to survive retirement without a pension, and find out everything you need to know about Medicare. Seriously, like pretty much everything. There are literally hundreds of videos to get you up to speed on just about any money topic that affects you. Just search YouTube for Pure Financial Advisors and Your Money, Your Wealth and start binge watching with purpose. Check back regularly because we're always adding new videos. Is is there a certain occupation or lifestyle person that would would do this more than someone else? I'm just trying to think. What are you thinking? Well, I don't know. Like a drug dealer? Yeah, if I'm getting, no, if I'm getting drunk every night and I'm doing something stupid with my life, it's like, all right, hey, I want to protect this stuff because I'm a complete idiot. Versus, right. or, or like, I don't know, if I screw up, yeah, I'm a heart surgeon. And I I mean, there's, there's certain occupations that will, or, you know, businesses, I think are more prone to lawsuits than others. Is that a fair assumption? Yeah, I, I mean, Joe, you're always you're really hitting the the, the key questions here. It, it's a function of your risk, or I would even go so far as to say a function of your perceived risk. In other words, your personal perception of your risk. So I've got some clients that I would, on the outside, look at and say very low risk, but their own perception of their risk, in other words, their own risk tolerance is very low, and so w- with a small amount of money. They're willing to, to really put a big amount of effort into protecting it. I've got other clients that are, have huge risk. I mean, they own multiple businesses operating in every state and thousands of employees. But, but at the same time, they're so used to lawsuits. They're so used to dealing with issues that you know, their perception of risk is such that, you know, I always handle it. It's no big deal. So to answer your question, the profile where I really see them the most worried is kind of your, your millionaire next door. In other words, the dentist, he has, he has 15 staff members. Um, he's worked 35 years to build up $2.5 million in net worth, and he just, he, just got, uh, he just had an employee storm out of the office yelling, I'm going to sue you. That's the guy that is, is going to be the most terrified because they cannot rebuild that wealth very quickly. It took them a long time to get it, it, it and they need to hold on to it. Um, and the risk of having even a small lawsuit turn into something big is, is actually pretty high, uh, especially in a state like California. So the answer is anyone with employees, anyone who's a medical professional, you know, absolutely anybody running a business and dealing with customers and consumers and patients, um, all of those people are, are, are really the profile. And with, with a million plus in some type of asset that is unprotected, whether it's home equity or cash savings or rental properties, that's really the key, the key profile of someone who would, would, would benefit the most from asset protection. Now you've made me completely paranoid. <laughs> you better get one right away. <laughs> yeah. I gotta say that. Uh, so, I but, mean, it's the world we live in, though. You know what I mean? It, it's just it like the world we live in. Uh, out of the blue. You know, you think you're best buddies with someone, and then you get you're gonna get. I don't know, whatever. Okay. Well, I can I can tell you the biggest areas where where people get get hurt is um, partnerships. 
you know, they go in, they don't take the proper concern on the way in, they just kind of think it's all going to work out. And when the business fails, there's problems, or, or ironically, when the business is really successful, there's lots of problems. Um, and then employees. Employees is the biggest issue today. It's by far. And if you're in California, it's a bigger issue for you than anywhere else in the country. The employment laws around employees in California are so restrictive, so beneficial to the employee as opposed to the employer, that you have to be exceedingly cautious. Um, I have clients moving out of the state simply because they can't handle the risk that their employees create. Wow. So, <laughs> so we have employees. Yeah. And so we have, we have a bunch. We got yeah. like, what, 55? 50 some odd employees. It better be good to them. Right. <laughs> oh, I don't know. I think we can get a fireball. <laughs> You got to get it right is what you got to do. You just got to get every absolute, every employment issue in California dead on right. And, and put asset protection in place for yourself. I mean, that, that, that would absolutely be the formula that I would prescribe. You know, do the right thing and have a backup so that if, if somehow it still goes bad, you're personally protected. So I, I want to go back to the asset protection trust, which if I heard you right, is probably somewhere two to $5 million range in, uh, in unprotected assets. We're not really talking about retirement accounts, but outs- assets outside of retirement or more. And so tell me how that works. And, I, and there's something called a bridge trust too. Yeah. So, so it, to simplify the asset protection trust world, there's really two ways you can do it. You can do it fully offshore, which means you're using an offshore jurisdiction like Nevis or the Cook Islands, um, and you're using the laws in that jurisdiction, which, to simplify it, make it virtually impossible for a creditor to get into a trust. So if you're really serious about protecting your trust, offshore is the way to do it. You can physically move your money away from a court and a legal system here inside of a trust that's governed by a set of laws and statutes in that country that make it exceedingly difficult for a creditor to get into it. That, that, that first occurred in 1984. Cook Islands was the first country to pass a statute that specifically allowed for that. And what was really kind of surprising, but, but very interesting, is that the United States followed suit. About 20 years later, in 1998, Alaska passed a similar law based on the Cook Islands law and said, hey, wait, you know, why send it offshore? Why not just send the money here to Alaska? Since then, there's been 17 U.S. states that have passed some form of domestic asset protection trust statute, which allows for the same thing, which is to, to take your money, put it into a trust, put spendthrift provisions around it, and make it difficult for a creditor to get into that to, the, to that trust. So, so the upside of the offshore is that it's incredibly protective. The downside is it costs more, and there's a lot more compliance and maintenance. Um, you know, uh, Al, you'd, you'd know if you have a foreign trust, you have to file a Form 3520 and some uh, disclosures, and it's something that a lot of clients are just pretty uh, averse to doing. The domestic trust solves that. It's domestic. You don't have any foreign trust tax compliance issues. You don't have any foreign accounts. The problem with the domestic trust is that they, they really aren't as strong because Nevada or Alaska can't really disregard a California judgment, uh, whereas the Cook Islands can literally throw it into the circular file, um, the, the, uh, an Alaska trustee or a Nevada trustee are going to have to respect it because we have a constitutional requirement that the states recognize the judicial proceedings of every other state. And so the history behind the, the domestic trust is much less reliable than the history behind the foreign trust. The way that we solve this in our practice is that I created something called a bridge trust. And it is both a foreign and a, a domestic trust. So it's filed in a foreign jurisdiction. It has all the formalities of a foreign trust. And we have a foreign trustee in the Cook Islands sitting in, in a standby position, ready to accept the trust if we ever have to use it. 
However, for the purposes of the IRS, we make it a domestic trust. So from a compliance standpoint, there's no foreign trust tax compliance issues. There's no um, foreign account that you have to deal with. Your money can stay right here in the U.S. in that LLC or in that limited partnership that we were talking about earlier. The trust can connect to that and then quietly sit there. And if there's ever an emergency in the future, we can cross the bridge, trigger the trust, we can drop the U.S. citizenship, and it becomes at that point a fully foreign asset protection trust with all the protections. This is all reminding me of that movie with Tom Cruise and Gene Hackman. When they go to the Bahamas and they have the cocktails and then he digs in the files. Oh, the firm. The yeah, firm. the firm, yeah. yeah. It's like he's a young, nice, you know, college grad. He's got his law degree. Then he goes to Chattanooga or Tennessee, goes That's to this right. Ricky Dink firm. They pay him like $2 million a year. And he's like, why are they paying me so much? Because right. we're doing all the, yeah, we're the, the mob, <laughs> right? Are you part of that right. firm? Doug? No, yeah, right. I probably wouldn't be doing radio shows if I was part of that firm. I think I'd be a little more quiet about it. <laughs> Can I see your client list? Yeah. No, well, you know what's funny is is that it's it's all a function of taxes. So there's two ways to see anything related offshore. And this is something that everybody listening can take to the bank. You really want to get this. If you're using offshore for a tax-motivated purpose, run. And run away fast. There is no legitimate reason that unless you're Google or Apple, there's no other way in which a normal business person can do anything offshore that is legitimate to reduce your taxes. It, it's, it's just a very, very, with almost no exceptions, it shouldn't go together. But when you're using offshore for an asset protection only purpose, meaning there is no tax motivation whatsoever, you're going to pay every penny of taxes regardless of where in the world your money is, then it's a different story. Because now you're utilizing the laws of a jurisdiction for their protectiveness, not because they're going to allow you to pay less taxes. And that's why asset protection is legitimate and, and offshore planning with a bogus company that's going to bill you for consulting and all that is illegitimate. Doug, this is great stuff. Where can people find you if they want more information? They can uh, go online. That's probably the best place to get a lot of information, and that's just lodmel, L-O-D-M-E-L-L dot com. Um, and they can certainly call me, 800-231-7112. They can talk to my assistant and set up an appointment, and I'll be happy to speak with them. And we'll have that on our show notes at yourmoneyyourwealth.com as well. Doug, hey, this was great, man. I really appreciate it. Thank you for being a good sport. This, I mean, this is crazy stuff. This is good. But I still think this is something has to do with the firm. all right guys my pleasure thank you so much all right buddy take care if you've got a burning money question call 888-994-6257 for your chance to talk to joe and big al and have your question answered live during your money your wealth that number again is 888-994-6257 888-994-6257 Time now for Big Al's List. Every week, Big Al Clopine scours the media to find the best tips, do's and don'ts, mistakes, myths, and advice to improve your overall financial picture in handy bullet point format. This week, six myths about credit freezes. Well, it's topical. It, it is topical. With the Did ec- you hear that Equifax got breached again? No, I didn't hear that. Really? I did. Okay. What'd you hear? That Equifax got breached. That's all you. That's heard. all I got. I get you're hoping I would be able to follow up with that. No, I didn't hear that, but I, I do know that they were breached. It was a gigantic breach. 143 million, half the population. Yeah, and uh, we've got some clients that uh, have. I don't know whether it was related to this or not, but that have had some identity issues, 
And uh, one thing that you can do, although it's not foolproof, but it, it, it helps stop some things, is put a freeze, credit freeze, on your credit. And what that is, if you don't know, is, is that's going to the three uh, major credit bureaus. Uh, so that's Equifax and Experian and, and TransUnion. And then you just simply freeze your credit, which, which means that no one can access your credit to open up a new credit card or loan account. It doesn't, uh, but that's about all it does. It just, it's, 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 it's as far as opening new credit. But uh, my list today, Joe, is six myths about credit freezes because folks don't really understand what it does or doesn't do. And myth number one is you have to be an identity theft victim to request a credit freeze. The answer to that is absolutely not. And and anyone can do a credit freeze. Although um, when you look at who should probably consider a credit freeze. Someone that got identity. It's it's someone that's been a victim. Here's the list. You've been a victim of of identity theft. Well, that's kind of obvious, right? Your credit card number has been stolen. Your mail has been tampered with or stolen. Or here's here's the most important one. You want to protect yourself from identity theft. I mean, that's uh, anyway. So so freeze costs a couple what thirty five bucks. Well, it depends. It costs between five dollars and twenty dollars depending upon the the credit bureau. Got it. Number two, credit freezes ensure you won't be a victim of fraud, and that is unfortunately false. Uh, because it's, uh, it, you know, they, I guess they say it's not a cure-all. It, it won't stop someone from running up a balance on an existing credit card or draining a bank account or filing a fake, ta- fake tax return. Those, those things can still happen. What it does do, though, is it, it doesn't allow anybody to um, open up a new credit card or a new loan in your name. Because what happens if they try to... The credit bureau has frozen your access. So so this third party, let's just say it's Wells Fargo. The person's trying to get a credit card through Wells, Wells Fargo in your name. Wells Fargo contacts Experian, and it's frozen. They're not allowed to access it. How do you want, uh, unfreeze it? Does it take a while? Well, no, know? it doesn't take a while, but usually there's money cost to unfreeze it as well. So if I pay five bucks to freeze it, and I pay right. five bucks to unfreeze it, right. Something and it's like just that. like almost simultaneously or do you think it takes like a couple of weeks well i i, I the hard part because here's what i hear this part is nowadays why, is to get through on the phone right right this is what i hear it's like well if you're you're planning on doing something in the future you probably don't want to do it well what does that mean i i'm gonna purchase a new car in four months right how long does it take so do i not freeze it until i purchase the car if I if I'm going to lease it or have credit, yeah, I think that's what they would say, and I, and I think the 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 getting unfroze is or is, is it just to save ten dollars? Well, I don't know, but I, I what, what I've heard, Joe, is and I'm is asking that, you a lot of questions. Yeah, that, that, I don't, you, that I'm you're just, an expert in. Credit, I'm, just, I'm just reading a list of six myths, and I, I don't know anything else. <laughs> no, it's not on the paper. What I did, <laughs> what I have heard, I'm probably misinformation because it was a as a headline. <laughs> Is uh, what I what I heard was that it that you can unfreeze it very quickly. So there you go. All right, that was the headline. Okay. You can unfreeze quickly. Number three, uh, you only have to request a freeze from one credit bureau. Huge mistake. It oh, says giant, huge mistake. Giant. <laughs> you, there's three credit bureaus. You got to do all three. 
What is that? Equifax, TransUnion, and Experian. Correct. Yeah, and and I guess what I have also heard from another reading uh, is that when you like, let's say you want to buy a new car. Yeah. Maybe you might ask the dealer which which credit bureau do you oh, use? Oh, just unfreeze that. It's one. Just unfreeze that one. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that that so, could work. Yeah. Okay. That that could be clever. Uh, number, myth number four: It's difficult to request a freeze. Now it's very simple. Uh, you do it uh, online by phone or mail. Uh, a lot of folks uh, tell you not to do it by online because then all your private information is floating around the internet. Well, isn't it already out there? Well, yeah, but you know what? What happens is people think they're freezing their credit, and they go to this site that's made to look like a credit bureau. Yeah, I know, I heard right? that. Yeah, and so then they're giving the thieves all this, and they're trying to do the right thing, and they end up <laughs> putting it in the wrong hands. So I, I think a lot of folks say maybe use the telephone. All right, maybe maybe that's and the, then be on hold. That's yeah, or, be on hold. Yeah, it's it's kind of like calling the IRS. Uh, you're you're going to give up your morning. And I'm not going to read these three. three um, give up your more. Yeah, I'm going to. I'm not going to read these three phone numbers, but we'll put them in our show notes. All right. Yeah. How about that? Yeah. yeah. Okay. Let's see. You can no. go to yourmoneyyourwealth.com for those. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Number five. You could re- transcribe everything we are saying right now is transcribed. If you if like you, right now, right this second, <laughs> everything, everything. See these words? They're transcribed. <laughs> uh, Brittany, you can delete that part. <laughs> Uh, okay, you won't be able to use your credit after you freeze it. All right, so this is what it says. A, a security freeze will prohibit new lines of credit, but can be lifted at any time on a temporary or permanent basis. Uh, to lift a freeze, customers must provide a PIN that was issued when the freeze was initially granted. There also may be a fee for the service. So there you go. That's how you do that. Number six, a credit freeze and credit lock are the same thing. Hmm. Guess they're not. So, oh, so if I got LifeLock versus a credit freeze, that's something. LifeLock is a, a third-party company. Right. It's a service that monitors your credit versus going Ex- to exactly right. So you know this stuff. Oh, come on, the locks yeah. locks are products, and they are definitely missing certain protections. Freezes are part of the law. Uh, most notably, credit locks may have language in their contracts requir- requiring arbitration. Which is which is great, right? And and like LifeLock, which I, I actually have, and so does Anne. That they, if if you do have an identity theft, they will step in and help you out, and they will even cover the legal cost up to I think it's a million bucks, if I'm not mistaken. Hmm. So that's it's nine ninety nine a month. There's probably more and better. I don't know. We just got the cheapest one. <laughs> probably that, that's the one where we get a trainee, and we get <laughs> we get four thousand dollars of free legal. I don't know. Yeah, not really go. sure. But wow. So, uh, but uh, but Joseph, it's um, it's kind of an important topic, and I actually just went to a um, conference conference last week, and they had a consumer panel uh, that was being interviewed by a financial planner, and the and the questions were, what's what's top of mind for you when it comes to your finances and financial planning and your investments, and you know what they all said was security breaches. I mean that's that's what that's what people are very concerned about. Particularly, I mean, we had Target and and others. And yeah. well, no, I can see why that concern is. If someone's going to steal my money, they're going to take it all. Versus the market might take right fifty percent of it. Yeah. In the worst case scenario, well, not worst case, it's hundred percent. Interestingly like, enough, they asked a question about would you the, to these four panelists that are consumers. They said, would you be willing to have more you know more hassle 
just to get to your data, and they all four said yes if it if it provides more protection. Although really? although one out of the four said it better provide more protection, otherwise I'm going to be pissed. <laughs> you know, because when you right now you try to log on to something and then you have to do the password, and then sometimes you have to get a code on your phone and all that stuff. It's awful. Yeah, right. Yeah, I had a couple clients that just to log into Social Security. I said just log into your Social. They go, Joe, we tried, but we couldn't answer the questions. Yeah, I didn't know. The- where I where my, right, the where, street where, the street I lived on in junior high yeah. <laughs> I couldn't remember right right <laughs> identity theft we've got a webinar on that visit the webinar section of the learning center at yourmoneyyourwealth.com to watch it learn how identity theft happens where criminals get info about you what you can do to protect yourself and steps to take if you become a victim while you're in the learning center check out the white papers articles the other webinars and the hundreds of video clips on tax planning investing retirement planning social security estate planning small business strategies and tons more it is a veritable treasure trove of information just waiting for you at yourmoneyyourwealth.com if you need more help you can always email us at info at purefinancial.com or call us at 888-994-6257. Social Security's going up, huh? A couple percent? Well, it is, and uh, it's a pretty good increase compared to recent times, Joe, and that's they did announce that recently, that uh, the Social Security Administration um, uh, recipients of the benefits, 65 million recipients, will get a 2% cost of living adjustment in 2018. And that was uh, the year before 2017. They got a 0.3 percent, which means it's about a, it's less than a percent. It's about a third of a percent. Right. We calculated that. Yeah. It I was, think the average Social Security benefit is about 1,300 bucks. Yeah. Yeah. And then so what's 0.3 of 1,300? It was. It, it was. It, I think it was a can of it, Pabst it, Blue Ribbon it, it a was, month. It was about five dollars. <laughs> And the year before, the raise was zero. I remember that. Anyway, so the average now, Joe, the average retired worker will um, will now cross and breach $1,400 per month. $1,404. They'll get a $27 a month increase. All right. Yeah, but unfortunately, many recipients will find that that the most or all of their increase is eaten up by Medicare Part B premiums sure. that are deducted from their monthly Social Security checks. So you may not actually see any extra money. Yeah, but the Medicare premiums go up, right? Health yeah. insurance in general is yeah. expensive. Right. So it is. It, I mean, it's not coming out of pocket. No. and that, Well, it is coming out of pocket, but it, it, you've got an increase to cover that. And this, this kind of brings me to a point that I want to make with regards to taxes, because a lot of folks sort of get this mixed up, which is the, simply this. The amount of Social Security that you receive either by check or, or you know, directly in your bank account or whatever, the amount that you receive is not the amount you pay taxes on. The amount you pay taxes on is the gross amount before they withheld amounts going for Medicare uh, uh, premiums. And so, like, let's just say you're supposed to get $2,000 a month, but the Medicare premium is $300 for you, let's just say, to make up a number, so you're going to get a check of seventeen hundred dollars, but you got to pay taxes on two thousand. And I've had a lot of people year after year come to me and say the ten ninety nine I got from Social Security is wrong because it says. Well, the two thousand is what's going to be computed to that, see how much of that would be subject to income tax. Correct. Yeah, and then yeah, we'll get we'll get to that in a second because oh. that's a whole other part. But but the, I, I just had a client come to me recently that said it's all messed up because. 
in my Quicken, we only got 30000 and they're saying we got 36000 on the 1099. And the difference is the Medicare premiums. Got it. So they're taxing you for the gross. So in that example, 36000 is the gross. Can I pay my Medicare premium? I'm going to ask you another question that you probably don't know. <laughs> like you're the Social Security Administration. Yeah. Can I pay my Medicare premiums outside well, of... You- well, you can, and that's actually what happens when you sign up for Medicare before receiving Social Security benefits. Right. You have to pay it outside. So if I'm 65, I'm paying it outside. Right. Once I, then let's say, I delay what, my Social once, Security benefits to 70. Yeah, right. And once you're on Social Security, no, mm-hmm. I don't think they allow you that because they. it's just like any company, and auto pay is a lot more reliable than waiting for someone to send you a check. Right. So then once I turn 70 and start collecting, they're going to automatically deduct yeah. it from my Social exactly. Security, you think? Yeah. Got it. That's my, that's my strong hunch on that one. Okay. Fact check. How, yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's our whole show need to be fact checked. And I'm okay with that because it's probably 94% accurate. <laughs> oh, remember that one guy that blew us up on the HSA or something? We talk, I, I don't even. We get blown up all the time. Vinny said misnomer. We're yeah, using we're... that word wrong. It's misconception. <laughs> I've been really careful. I don't think I've said misnomer until this show for about two years. <laughs> So, Vinny, if you're listening, thank you for that. And you probably, there's probably about 25 other things I'm saying wrong. So, let me know what they are so I can fix it. <laughs> now, back to topic Social Security income. Uh-huh. So, let's just say I'm going to make it real simple math so we can understand this. So, you receive $10,000 of benefits annually. Okay. Okay. Net or gross? Gross. All right. <laughs> <laughs> That's what your 1099 from Social Security Administration says. All right. So then it's like... But I didn't receive 10. Yeah. I probably only received seven. You received seven, probably. <laughs> well, that's true. Your, <laughs> the gross amount is 10. <laughs> anyway, so then it's like maybe none of that's taxable. Maybe half of it's taxable. Right. Maybe 85% of that is taxable. And by the way, those are not tax rates. That's just how much of that income is subject to tax. Meaning that if $10,000, you got $10,000 and 85% of it's taxable. So it's as if you made an extra $8,500 and then that goes on your tax return. And that's what you pay taxes on. If you're, if you're in the 10% bracket, just to make this super simple, then that's $850 is your tax on that $10,000 gross. Got it. So the thresholds are 34000 single, 44000 married to get to that 85% yeah, tax rate. Yeah, right. In other words, the more money you make outside of Social Security, the more likely it is to be taxable. Right. So they look at half of your Social Security benefits. It's called provisional income. So they look at half of your Social Security benefits. So my benefit's $20,000. They'll say, okay, well, let's start at ten. And then they take your adjusted gross income, so that's your interest, dividends, 401k distribution, pensions, um, anything else, and they um, even municipal bond interest they'll take a look at. So they'll add that up, your adjusted gross. The add back is half of your Social Security benefit. And if you're married, if you're over $44,000, then 85% of your Social Security benefit is subject to income tax. Yeah, but here's where it, it gets even more confusing is it's not a cliff. It's not all or nothing. It phases in that extra amount. So really, it's it's actually not zero to fifty. It's zero to amount. Then it gets to fifty, and, and then, then it's fifty to an amount that gets to eighty five. Right? They just well, actually, they add another thirty five percent on top of it. Yeah. To call it eighty five. Yeah. Right. Right. Yeah. Uh, to be very specific. Well, yeah, but I guess what I'm saying though is you can be over the forty four thousand dollars and still not pay eighty five percent on everything. It's 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 still a graduated schedule. That I know. 
just have to trust me on that. Well, you fact, do taxes. Fact check. But. Fact check. <laughs> so anyway, it's good news, right? Twenty twenty-seven dollar a month increase social security for the average person. Now, if your benefit is double that, then gosh, you got fifty bucks a month more to spend. You know, pretty exciting. Huh? That is. That's yeah. good. In Southern California, that what does that buy you in Southern California? I don't know. Dinner. Dinner at Chili's. <laughs> yeah. Without drinks. T- TGI Fridays. <laughs> When's the last time you've been to Chili's? It's been a long time, to be honest. I, I can't remember. We have one near our work, but I, I yeah, think, I would. I think I've been there once. Really? Think, I've been there. I used to like used to go there. Well, for lunch maybe every now yeah. and again. Yeah. Well, you never eat lunch out there. I'm right at my desk. Yeah. I'm busy. I know you're. <laughs> but you've been lately. You've been disappearing at lunch. So I, you're, you've got a new this life balance thing. What, what are you talking about? Your, your car's gone a lot of times at lunch. Oh, there's been, I've had a dermatologist appointment. Oh, okay. If you if, if I must know. <laughs> yes. Yes. You have a physical check Yes, that I had. Yes. Yeah. Car fixed? Yeah. You got it. Right? Okay. Oh, I got to see my shrink. Yeah. You know? right. Of course. Yeah. <laughs> Laying on a black couch for a couple of Five days a week. That's <laughs> <laughs> Working with you, man. I got Oh, man. Get my life balance. Well, I, I gotta see just him, talk. I see him right after you. It's funny we haven't run into each other. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> hear the doorbell. Well, that's Big Al. Your I'm, session I'm, is over. Can I go out the back? <laughs> yeah, all right. <laughs> I can see him up front there. <laughs> yeah. He looks like he's, You can't see me. He, he looks like he's hurting. I better leave. He needs more help than I do. Oh, boy. San Diego, for those of you not in need of a lunchtime therapy session, how about joining us for a one-hour lunch and learn on Thursday, November 30th instead? We'll look back, review the year's major headlines, and discuss what may be ahead. Learn what the data is telling us about the economy's health, what financial experts predict for the end of 2017, and which details you should be paying attention to. Visit purefinancial.com slash market update to register for this free event. Lunch is included. Visit purefinancial.com slash market update. It's time to dip into the email bag with financial questions courtesy of Advisor Insights from Investopedia and you, the Your Money, Your Wealth listeners. Joe and Big Al are always willing to answer your money questions. Email info at purefinancial.com or send your questions directly to joe.anderson at purefinancial.com or ellen.clopine at purefinancial.com. Let's see here. I had a partial rental property that my daughter has lived in for 14 years while I rented the basement out until a few years ago. Okay. My daughter doesn't pay rent on a regular basis, and the property has been losing money during the last several years. So I sold the property to my son so that he could build his credit with a gift of equity of $80,000. Okay. When I purchased the house, I built a workshop on the property so that I could use the property for my needs as a contractor. The value of the house is much higher than when I bought it. Is there any rule that can reduce capital gains tax if it is a family home occupied by family, sold to family, and has been available for personal use? Uh, great question. The answer is no. <laughs> Next. Next. <laughs> now, you Good know try. What? You know, once it's sold. Denied. I don't care if it's to your son or daughter or sister. That's a taxable sale. So it's very simple. It's it's what you sold it for minus closing costs. You compare that to what you bought it for plus improvements. And that difference is your gain on sale. And uh, for it so- sounds like this individual, he, they didn't live in it. So there's no you know principal residence exclusion. So it's just fully taxable as capital gain. So gift the whole 
property to the son. If, right, if you don't want to pay tax on it. Have the son live in the house two out of the last five years and have him sell it. Look at you. Yeah. And then give the money back to dad. Yes. That would avoid the tax. And file gift tax returns both directions. Please. Yes. Do this Please legally. comply with the law. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So that's what should have happened. Yeah. But it's well, too late. Too late. Okay, I know the year you turn 70 and a half, RMDs are required. Does that mean exactly on that date, or is there some uh, span of time to start the RMD? For example, my wife will turn 70 and a half years old on February 1st, 2018. Okay. Do RMDs start on that date between then and sometime during the year, or by 4-15-2018? 15, 18. So the April 15th of the next year. Yeah. It's not April 15th. It's it, April well, 1st. April 1st. But, but he he's said, he the, said, he the said, tax t- finally deadline. he said 2018, not 19. True. The, anyway, so there's a few issues there, I suppose. So when you, when you turn 70 and a half, yes, you're supposed to start taking required minimum distributions, but your required beginning date is April 1st of the following year. So if I wrote this down right, Joe, how his wife's going to, uh, turn, 70 and a half in February 1st of 2018. So that first required minimum distribution, the, the required beginning date would be April 1st of 2019. However, since that's the following year, you have to take two RMDs. So it might actually be smarter to take one in 2018 and then yet take another one in 2019 to spread out that that liability a little bit. Yeah, uh, everything is based on the required beginning date and the required beginning date is April 1st. The year following, you turned 70 and a half. So this is where it gets a little bit confusing, too, depending on when your birthday is. Yes. Right? Yeah. So if your birthday is between January and June or June through December, right? Because it's it's 70 and a half. Because when's your 70 and a half birthday hit? Right. Right? So people people are like, once I turn 70, but it's not, it's 70 and a half. And so then you got to figure out when's your 70 and a half birthday. Then you have the following year after you turn 70 and a half by April 1st to take that required minimum distribution. And it's going to be based on the balance of the overall account of 1231 the previous year. Right. Right. So you take an aggregate of all of the accounts of that you own that's in a shell of a retirement account. And Mm -hmm. then whatever that balance is. Then you could take the required distribution the year you turn 70 and a half. If you don't want to take the distribution that year, you don't have to. There's no penalty. And the penalty is 50%. Five zero, 50%. Yeah, so you don't want to miss it. You don't want to miss it. Yeah. So then you can wait until April 1st the following year. And I think the IRS did that just to give people a little bit of time span, well, just like he's asking. Because a lot of people don't know the rule. And then it's, they turn 70 and a half. And then somewhere along the line, they heard, oh, shoot, I got to take a... Required distribution. Right. So they, you turn seventy and a half in December. So so they, they they let you do it to April first of the following year so that you but but you know, so you have time to kind of fix it because they're not really necessarily trying to have you pay a fifty percent penalty, but if you do miss that date, then that's what they require. Now I will say this, Joe. If if this happened to you, they will very often grant a one time exclusion from the penalty. But if you do this year after year, yeah, you're gonna pay the penalty. Right. Uh Okay, I got time for got maybe one more. Okay. I'm getting a little tired here. Yeah, right, me too. <laughs> <laughs> Better be an easy one. Yes. My wife has two annuities due in less than two years for approximately value of $150,000. Okay. 
Okay. Rather than reinvest in another annuity, we're thinking of loaning this Roth money to our daughter and son-in-law for them to build their dream home. <laughs> oh, God. That, this, this the one, wheels are coming this, right off. This one has you all over it. We're not certain of the length of the loan yet, 7 to 10 years, 10 to 15 years, but the rate would be about 3%. I would think that 3% interest that we receive is not taxable to us. But can our daughter and son-in-law deduct the mortgage interest from their taxes? Oh, jeez. We might need some more time to unravel this. This but, is but, just a but, can of worms. But I guess, first of all, what, what does that mean? Two annuities are due in two years. What does that mean? Well, okay. Well, first of all, I and I guess he's got these annuities in his Roth IRA. And he's got $150,000 in his Roth, but he bought two annuities. All right. Well... First of all, let's kind of clear this up. The annuity is just a, a contract issued by a life insurance company that is either a deferred annuity, it's a, a you know fixed annuity, variable annuity, whatever. What he means by um, is coming up, right? What does he say? Due. They're coming due. Is that the surrender charge that's is, what I was is thinking. over? So that's when the surrender charge is over. Yeah. So, so you, you don't have to do anything. No. But you can pull the money out if you want. Well, I guarantee you get a call from the insurance agent three minutes after that thing is due and say, "Hey, your hey, contract's we, let's, due. Yeah. Let's get another one. Let's renew it. I need a new commission." Yeah. Sure. But now he's saying it's in a Roth. Yeah. And then yeah. he wants to give it to his kids for a dream home. What? Don't. What are you doing? <laughs> <laughs> so. If you're pulling money from a Roth, first of all, it's tax-free. Yeah. All right? So then you're going to take a distribution of $150,000. But he's saying, we're thinking of loaning this Roth money, so you're going to take a distribution from the Roth. You can't loan. I think he's You can't take a loan from the Roth. You can take a loan from your 401k. I think that's what he's thinking. So so if that's what he really wants to do, then it's a distribution from the Roth, which if he's not 59 and a half... Some but could be subject to penalties, depending on what his basis is. Correct. It's first in exactly right. But still, that's a lot of money in a Roth. Why go anywhere else but there? Well, I, but that's what I think. You're right. I think he was thinking he, it's just an investment inside of his Roth. And the answer is no. You can't loan your children something out of your Roth and have it stay in the Roth. They pay back the Roth. Right. And he's thinking, well, the interest that I get is tax free. No. 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 You can't do that. No. That's a prohibited transaction. That's the whole thing blows up. Yeah. So you loan your kids money, you charge them 3%. They're going to pay you 3%. That is taxable event to you because you're getting interest. It doesn't matter if it's your kids. Right. Yeah. But that's with money outside of outside of the account. Roth. And he's the, saying it's tax free because he thinks it's he's loaning the money in the Roth and he's just going to funnel so, it so through. So it's a new investment in the Roth. I'm going to loan it to my kids and you, you can't do that. That's self-dealing. Yes. You can you can buy trust deeds though in a Roth, but just make sure if if it's a related party, there's all kinds of traps and and issues you got to be aware of. But here's the question I have then: so everything else is blown up here, <laughs> except for his last question. Yes. So if I'm lending money to someone and I'm charging them three percent, and it's for a primary residence, can they they can they deduct that? interest then off their tax return? They, they can if you, the lender, secure the note and actually record it with the county. But if it's just mother, daughter, yeah. what's the likelihood of them doing that? Yeah, probably not. And so from tax law, then no, you can't deduct it at that point. It has to be secured by the property. This is the problem with individuals trying to do stuff a little 
Yes, a little bit too creatively. Little bit. Eight, well, I'm going to give it from the Roth. It's in the Roth, so there's no so, tax. So it's tax free. Ah, I listen to Joe and Big Al. They're saying it's always tax free. <laughs> so I'm going to loan this money to my kids so they can buy their dream home and blow up my retirement. Right. So they can live happily ever after, and then I'm going to end up living in their basement. <laughs> Because I'm going to jail because I did tax fraud. Right. That's it for us today. Hopefully you enjoyed the show. We'll see you next week. Show's got your money or wealth. So to recap today's show, Joe thinks we should be able to make unlimited contributions to our retirement plans, and he's pretty pissed off about how complex they're making it for us to save. The budget has passed, so look for tax reform very soon. A credit freeze can help you avoid identity theft, but don't buy into the myths. It isn't foolproof or a cure-all. I wonder if they can just put a freeze on Equifax to avoid any more breaches. And no, you can't give your kids a tax-free loan from your Roth to build their dream home. It's ideas like that one that drive Joe and Big Al to see a psychiatrist. Special thanks to our guest, Doug Lodmel, who swears his asset protection techniques are nothing like what we saw in the movie The Firm. Visit lodmel.com, that's L-O-D-M-E-L-L.com to learn more about asset protection, because losing money sucks. Subscribe to the podcast at yourmoneyyourwealth.com through your favorite podcatcher or on iTunes, where you can also check out our ratings and reviews. And remember, if you've got a burning money question for Joe and Big Al to answer on Your Money, Your Wealth, just email info at purefinancial.com or call 888-994-6257. Listen next week for more Your Money, Your Wealth presented by Pure Financial Advisors. For your free financial assessment, visit purefinancial.com. Pure Financial Advisors is a registered investment advisor. This show does not intend to provide personalized investment advice through this broadcast and does not represent that the securities or services discussed are suitable for any investor. Investors are advised not to rely on any information contained in the broadcast in the process of making a full and informed investment decision. Your Money, Your Wealth opening song, Motown Gold by Carl James Pestka, is licensed under a Creative Commons license.